Section 12 of Broken Barriers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Kurt from Tucson, Arizona. Broken Barriers by Meredith Nicholson. Chapter 10. 1. Grace and Trenton had sprung apart as Moore passed in the highway, and they waited in silence until the sound of his even step over the hard macadam died away. The romp through the cornfield had loosened her hair, and she began thrusting it back under her hat. Trenton, straightening his tie, looked the least bit crestfallen. Who was that? he asked. John Moore. An awfully nice fellow I knew in college. He's just moving to Indianapolis to go into the law. There's no question but he saw us. It's so easy to forget there are other people in the world. I hope his seeing us won't embarrass you. Oh, John's all right, she replied. The only embarrassment is that I fibbed to him about this afternoon. He asked me to go walking. We did a lot of tramping at college and I told him I was going to a matinee. Well, you were, laughed Trenton, then with an attempt at carelessness. Is he a suitor? Heavens, no, but I admire John as everyone does who knows him. He's a mighty good friend, and the kindest soul in the world. As they resumed their walk toward the shack, she continued talking of John. Trenton manifesting a sympathetic interest, and asking questions to elicit further anecdotes of Moore's varied activities at the university. He may be in love with you, he suggested. You see, I can't help being just a little jealous of every man you knew before you knew me. If John's in love with me, he's very successful in concealing it, she laughed. No, strange as it may seem, he likes to talk to me, and I'm proud of his friendship. He does a lot of reading and thinking. He's a fine character, and you'd be sure to like him. He's leaving the law school to go into Judge Sanders' office. The judge has picked him for a winner. I know Sanders. He's Tommy's lawyer. I see I'll have to keep an eye on Moore, he went on teasingly. I'm not sure he isn't likely to become a dangerous rival. I wish I were sure you could be jealous. Maybe I'm jealous, too. Hasn't that ever occurred to you? She was a little frightened at her temerity in asking a question that was the crystallization of her constant speculation as to his attitude toward his wife. There flashed through her mind everything he had said of Mrs. Trenton, which, to be sure, was very little, though the little required clarifying. She recalled the apology in his St. Louis letter for having spoken of Mrs. Trenton at all. In that first talk at the shack, he had led her to believe that his wife gave him wide liberty to do as he pleased. But it was conceivable that a woman might indulge her husband's acquaintance with women she did not know and was not likely to meet without sanctioning infidelity. Grace had persuaded herself that there was a distinct difference between entering into a liaison with a man who still maintained marital relations with his wife and one who did not. 
She was vastly pleased with the moral perception that showed her this, and she was confident that she had the will to dismiss him if his explanation of the modus vivendi that existed between him and his wife should prove to be unsatisfactory. The cowpath they were traversing made it necessary for them to walk singly, and he went ahead, holding back the boughs that hung over the trail. For a few minutes, she thought he meant to ignore her question, but suddenly he stopped and swung round. I know what you're thinking of, he said quietly. You're thinking of Mrs. Trenton. He pulled a twig from a young maple and broke it into tiny bits. Grace wondered whether this trifling, unconscious act might not symbolize the casting aside of such slight ties as bound him to his wife. Yes, I've thought of her a great deal. You couldn't blame me for that. No, that's wholly natural, he said quickly. You wouldn't be the woman I know you to be if you didn't. You have a right to know just what my relations are with my wife. I'll be frank about it. I loved her when I married her, and I believe she loved me. There was an appeal for sympathy in his eyes, a helplessness in his tone that was new to her knowledge of him. It was as though the thought of Mrs. Trenton brought a crushing depression upon him. Jealousy yielded to pity in her heart. She was touched with something akin to maternal solicitude for his happiness. But she wished to know more. The time had come for an understanding of his attitude toward his wife and of Mrs. Trenton's toward him. Does love really die? she asked almost in a whisper. If you two loved each other once, how can you tell whether the love is dead or not? It's the saddest thing in the world, he said, smiling in his tolerance of her ignorance, that love can and does die. Mrs. Trenton and I meet rarely now, but our estrangement came about gradually. I admit that the fault has been more than half mine. In every such case, there's always fault on both sides. When I saw that her interests were carrying her away from me, and particularly after she began to be a public character through her writing and lecturing, I might have asserted myself a little more strongly. Let her know that I wanted her and needed her even if the first passion was gone. But you may laugh at this. I had old-fashioned ideas that didn't square with her new notions of things. I wanted children and a home of the traditional kind. Possibly it was in my mind, he smiled wanly, that I expected my wife to bring my slippers and mother me when I was tired. All men are babies, you know, but all women don't understand that. Probably there's where the trouble began. And I found myself more and more alone as Mrs. Trenton got deeper into her reform work. She likes the excitement of moving about and stirring people up. I think she even enjoys being criticized by the newspapers. I'm a peaceful person myself and can't quite understand that. We still keep a house in Pittsburgh, but I haven't seen Mrs. Trenton there for a long time. I doubt whether she any longer considers it her domicile. When we've met, it's been by accident or where I've made the opportunity by going to some place where she was lecturing. The breach has widened until we're hardly more than acquaintances. She said that if I ever found a woman I thought I'd be happy with, to be frank about it. 
It may be in her mind to free me if I ask it. I don't know. And that's the situation. You don't. You're you're sure you don't love her anymore? Grace asked, uttering the words slowly. No, he answered, meeting her direct gaze with a candor that was part of his charm for her. That's all over. It was over before I met you. But I suppose, after a fashion, I'm still fond of her. She was always interesting and amusing. Even as a girl, she'd been a great hand to take up with new ideas. When the suffrage movement developed, she found she could write and speak, and I saw less of her to a point where we began an existence quite independent of each other. I want you to be satisfied about this. If there's anything you want to know. No, I believe you, and I think I understand. And I'm sorry, very sorry for your unhappy times. I wish. Yes, dear. Oh, you're so fine, so kind, so deserving of happiness. I want so much to help you find it. I want to be of real use to you. You deserve so much of life. But do I deserve you? He asked softly. She answered with a look all eloquent of her love and kissed him. When they reached the house, they found Irene and Kemp in the living room engaged in a heated argument over Irene's preemption of a bottle of whiskey, which she had seized to prevent his further consumption of the contents. Take it, Ward, Irene cried, flinging off Kemp's hold upon her arm and handing the bottle to Trenton. Tommy's had too much. I'm going to take him home. Give me that bottle. Gotta have another drink, blurted Kemp, lunging toward Trenton. Not another drop, said Trenton, passing the bottle to Grace, who ran with it to the dining room and told Jerry to hide it. Kemp, caught in Trenton's arms, drew back and stared, grinning stupidly in his befuddlement at the leisure de main by which the bottle had eluded him. Tommy's a naughty boy, said Irene. He's nasty when he's drunk. Hands off, she cried as Kemp once again menaced her. Don't you dare touch me. Not going home. Never going home. Going to stay right here, declared Kemp, tottering as he attempted to assume an attitude of defiance. The Japanese boy had brought in the tea tray and was lighting the kettle lamp. Everything's going fine, Kemp continued, indicating the tray with a flourish. Have nice chat over teacups. Hiccups, teacups joke. (laughs) Guests drink tea, host drink whiskey. That's 30-year-old ward. Can't change drinks. Always makes me sick, change drinks. Where's that bottle? You've spoiled everything by getting drunk, said Irene viciously. You're going home. You know what you told me the other night at Minnie's. Your doctors warned you to cut out the booze or you'll die. Your heart won't stand it. Kemp turned toward her slowly, opening and closing his eyes in the effort to comprehend this statement. He was very white. Trenton was watching him with deep concern. Nothing the matter with me. Just fooling about doctor. Had to get a little sympathy out or Irene. I'll put you to bed, Tommy, said Trenton. A nap will pull you out of this. No, you don't, Ward, old man. Not slippy. Not bit slippy. He's got a dinner engagement in town at seven. And I've got a date myself, said Irene. I'll take him home. The chauffeur will look after him. There's no use letting him spoil the day for you and Grace. You came out in the runabout, didn't you, Jerry? Jerry can walk over to the inner urban when he's ready to go, and you two can take your time about going in. You can manage the runabout, can't you, Ward? 
That's easy enough, Trenton replied, frowning in his perplexity as he eyed Kemp, who had stumbled to a chair where he sat breathing heavily. But I don't like your going in alone with Tommy. Irene bent over Kemp and drew a file from his pocket. She shook out a tablet and placed it in his mouth. The vigilant Japanese boy was ready with a glass of water. Strychnia, explained Kemp with a drunken grin. How you come think of that, Irene? First aid and all that sort of thing. Giving me poison, that's what she's doing. Forget I had that stuff in my pocket. Awful funny. Doctor cut off whiskey and give me rat poison. Most singular. Most incompre- incomprehensible. He lay back on his chair and threw out his legs, wagging his head as he laughed inordinately at his lingual difficulties. When Trenton tried to feel his pulse, he good-naturedly resisted. He was perfectly all right. Never felt better in his life, he declared. The question of his immediate return to town was preemptorily settled by Irene, who rang for the car. His heart's certainly doing queer things, said Trenton. It would be better for us all to go in. Oh, he'll come out of it. It's nearly dark, and I'll open the car window and give him air. Craig's driven him for years, and he'll look after him at home. I'm sick of this business. If he wants to kill himself, let him go ahead. He oughtn't to be left alone at home, said Grace. You'd better go in with him, Ward, and see that he has the doctor. You will do nothing of the kind, said Irene decisively. I've been through this before, and his heart kicking up this way doesn't mean anything. Alcohol hits him quick, but it doesn't last long. He really didn't have enough to make a baby tipsy, but he never learns that he can't stand it. You two just forget all about him. Craig, the chauffeur, came in with Kemp's coat, and they got him into it. But Kemp played for delay. His dinner engagement was of no consequence. He insisted that Irene could go alone if she pleased. She was a quitter, and above all things, he hated a quitter. His engagement to dine was at the Isaiah Cummings's, and the fact that he was asked there called for an elaborate explanation which he insisted on delivering from the door. People were always boring him by asking him to do things when his wife was away, from a mistaken idea that a man alone in town is a forlorn and pitiable being, subject to the wiles of people he cares nothing for and in normal circumstances avoids. He warmed to the work of abusing Cummings. It was an impertinence on the part of his business competitor to invite him to his house. The Cummingses were climbers. His wife detested Mrs. Cummings. And if she had been home, he wouldn't have been trapped into an engagement of which he now profoundly repented. And besides, the dinner would be dry. He would never be able to sit through it. The insistence of the others that it was a formal function and that it was too late to withdraw his acceptance aroused him to an elaborate elucidation of the Cummings's offer of hospitality. Cummings was hard up. He had sunk a lot of money in oil ventures. Kemp recited a list of Cummings's liabilities, tracing imaginary tables of figures on the wall with an unsteady finger and turning to his auditors for their concurrence in his opinion that Cummings was on the verge of bankruptcy. Plan up to me. Thinks Tom Kemp's going to help him out. 
Poor boob'd like to merge. Merges business with me. No, you don't, Mr. Cummings, he bowed mockingly to an imaginary Cummings. The bow would have landed him on the floor if Trenton hadn't caught him. Just foolin'. Don't need to hold me, Ward, he said, straightening himself. Going home right now. Miss Kirby, take my arm. Guess I know my manners. Ordinary courtesy do lady every part of the world. Irene steadied him to the car, and after Craig had lifted him in, he waved his hand to Trenton and Grace with an effort at gaiety. House all yours, Ward. Make you present to old shack. Burn it down, does you please. Jerry'll give you anything you want. You want everything. Two. Grace and Trenton watched the car turn the long bend toward the highway and hurried back to the fire of hickory logs that crackled merrily in the living room fireplace. Now for tea, said Grace. I ate a huge dinner, but our tramp's given me a new appetite. She sat down before the tray while he stood by the hearth, resting his elbow on the mantel shelf, watching her. Jerry asked if he should turn on the lights. Thank you, no, Jerry, Grace answered. The fire gives light enough. No, don't trouble about dinner. You might give us some sandwiches with our tea. There was a broad smile on Trenton's face as he took his cup and sat down near her. What's the joke, Ward? she asked. She was now finding it easy to call him Ward. It's not a joke. I was just admiring your manner of dressing, Jerry. It was quite perfect. He was greatly impressed by it. Oh, was that it? What did you expect me to do, snap at him? No, I was only thinking how charming you'd be as the lady of a great house. Your slaves would worship you. Jerry caught the idea, too. I never saw him bow so low. Jerry's adorable, she murmured, her eyes flashing her appreciation of Trenton's compliment. But... Really, I must look awful. My hair's in a mess. I'll run upstairs and give it a smoothing as soon as we've had tea. Please don't. I like it that way. The dark frame for your face adds a charm that's bewildering. What did Tommy mean about Cummings, she asked presently. Isn't the Cummings business prospering? Tommy must know what he's talking about. He never quite loses his head, even when he's drunk. These are anxious times, and it's quite possible that Cummings is hard up. Tommy can afford to feel easy because he's well off even without his manufacturing business. I've got to do something about Tommy, though, he went on thoughtfully. His New York doctor told me he'll have to stop his monkey shines, or something unpleasant will happen to him. While I'm here, I'm going to try to get him to submit to treatment, but he's not easy to manage. Frankly says he prefers a short life and a merry one. We've got to save Tommy if we can. He smiled a little sadly. Grace liked the way he talked of Kemp and listened attentively while he gave many instances of Tommy's kindness and generosity. About your father's improvements on the motor, Trenton continued. I'll go into that while I'm here. From the claims of the new patents, it would appear that he's got something of real value. But we'll have to give them a tryout. We can do that at Kemp's shop. Of course, Tommy will be anxious to get the new ideas if they're practical. Even a small success just now will mean so much to Father, said Grace. He was greatly excited by your letter and had to be convinced that you weren't acting for Cummings. He pretends to mother 
that there was nothing unfair in Cummings' treatment of him, but deep down in his heart, he's terribly bitter. A fire makes for intimacy, and their conquered was now so complete that silence had all the felicity of speech. The perfect expression of love may be conveyed in a glance, and from time to time their eyes met in communications too precious for words. After these mute periods, the talk would ripple on unhurriedly as though they were the inheritors of immeasurable time. In moments of animation, when her dark eyes flashed and she smilingly invited his response, she disclosed new and beguiling charms. In its disorder, her hair emphasized what Irene was fond of calling Grace's gypsy look. The tea disposed of, she sent away the tray, and as his cigarette case was empty, she filled it from a box Jerry found for her. It seems funny to be using other people's things this way, she remarked. It's like finding a house in perfect running order on a desert island. You don't know what a joy it is to be waited on in this fashion. He looked up at her fondly as she stood beside him. When she returned the case, he drew her upon his knees, took her hand and scrutinized it closely. He pressed a kiss upon the palm and closed his fingers upon it. How long will you keep it? he asked. The hand, she asked provokingly. No, what I've just put into it. Oh, I don't need to keep that, do I? Won't there be some more? Millions, he replied and clasped her tight. Your hands are finely shaped and interesting, Ward. Oh, you have a double lifeline. You'll never die. The Mount of Apollo is wonderfully developed. Don't you see it right there? Of course that's what that is. It's plain enough why music affects you so. You really might have been an artist of some kind yourself. This called for an argument in the course of which she got illuminative glimpses of him as a boy who was always interested in machinery. He had been predestined to the calling he had chosen, but confessed that sometimes he wished that he had tried his hand at executive work. I may do it yet, he said. I have opportunities occasionally which I am probably foolish to let pass to take hold of big concerns, but I have liked my freedom to roam. It's helped solve my problem to be able to wander. Yes, I understand, dear, she said, softly stroking his hair. She knew that by his problem he meant his wife, though she had accepted as sincere his explanation of his relations with Mrs. Trenton. She resented, in spite of herself, even this remote reference to the woman whom she had never seen but had constantly tried to visualize. I might even move to Indianapolis one of these days, he was saying. I have a standing offer from Tommy to come and help him run his plant. I tell him it's his game to wish his job on me so he can have more time to play. And Tommy doesn't need that. She drew from his waistcoat pocket the locket that had so aroused her curiosity at their first meeting. What's in this ward? she asked, holding up the round gold trinket. Oh, that, he said, frowning at it. Don't look so cross. Must I tease you to show me what's inside? As she dangled it at arm's length, he encouraged the idea that its contents were secret by snatching it away. It's the darkest of mysteries. What will you give me for a peep? I might give you one kiss, she said deliberating, if I like what's inside. Oh, I must have three. Agreed. But don't show me if you don't want to. 
Well, it's a great concession, a privilege reserved only for royalty. He opened the locket guardedly, so turning it as to conceal the inner surfaces. Just a moment, please. Do you stand by the bargain? Absolutely. He gave it to her, laughing at her disappointment at finding it empty. Fraud, she exclaimed. How long has it been empty? Do you really want to know, he asked, suddenly grave. Yes, but not if you'd rather not tell me. I can't give you the exact date, but you can approximate it for yourself. Do you remember the first time I wrote you from St. Louis? It seems eons ago. Yes, I'll never forget that. Well, that night I took out and destroyed a little photograph I'd carried there for a good many years. I'll leave you to guess why I didn't care for it anymore. Your wife's picture? Yes. I bought the locket right after we were engaged, and the picture had been there until I took it out that night in St. Louis. Tell me more about how you came to take it out, she asked with the insistence of a child demanding the continuation of a story. Didn't it have any kind of meaning for you anymore? Not even little associations? Memories you wouldn't lose? No, it was as though something had died in me and utterly ceased to be. I was wondering about a lot of things that night. After I had written to you, I wrote a letter to Mrs. Trenton. She had said from time to time that if I ever found myself interested in another woman, not to be afraid to tell her. I don't know how seriously she meant that. Odd as it may seem, I don't know Mrs. Trenton. I used to think I did, but that was sheer conceit on my part. As long as she had made that suggestion about telling her if I met a woman who really appealed to me more than she did, I thought I'd tell her about you. Oh, I didn't tell your name, nor where you live, he exclaimed, seeing the look of consternation on Grace's face. My agreement with her was half a joke. In later years, I've never quite known when to take her seriously. I suppose I wrote her more to feel her out as to whether she might not have reached the point where it would be a good thing to quit altogether. Well, Grace asked, what'd she say? Oh, oh, so far her only answer has been a magnificent silence. The philosophers agree, don't they, that a woman doesn't always mean what she says, but a silence is even more baffling. What would you say about it? A little ominous, perhaps. Contempt? Disdain? Indifference? Maybe she's awaiting further advices, as we say in business. Possibly she never got the letter. That's conceivable. She's a fast traveler. The males have hard work to catch up with her. You don't really know whether she got the letter or what she would have written if she received it. Maybe she's just waiting for a chance to talk to you about it. Well, in any event, we needn't worry about it, said Trenton with a shrug. She rose and drew up a low rocker and sat beside him, facing the fire. I'd like to have seen your letter, said Grace musingly. I told her you kissed me. Like a brave man, I put the responsibility on you. Oh, that wasn't fair, she cried hastily. It would be sure to give her a bad impression of me. I think I intimated that it was only such a kiss as a daughter might bestow upon a father she didn't think so badly of. I shall always be glad that our first kiss was like that. We've traveled a long way since then. Every step has been so dear, she said contentedly. I think I could never forget one single thing. I don't believe I've forgotten a word you've ever said to me. And when you were away, I lived our times all over again. 
and I like to imagine that we talk to each other by our own private wireless, even when you are miles away. I think I can imagine just what you would say and how you would look when you said it. Oh, she bent forward quickly and grasped his hand in both of hers. Her lips quivered and there was a mist in her eyes. Oh, I wish I didn't love you so much. Has it occurred to you, he asked, that we're alone way out here in the woods? I don't feel a bit lonesome. I'd never be afraid anywhere with you. The fire had burned low, and she watched admiringly his manner of replenishing it. He used the shovel to push back the ashes and bring the embers together in a neat bed in the center of which he dropped a fresh log with calculated accuracy. It was his scientific mind, she reflected, habituated to careful planning even in unimportant things. He stood for a moment inspecting his work, moved the log a trifle, watched attentively the effect of the change, and as the dry loose bark broke into flame, brushed the hearth neatly and smiled into her eyes as he found her at his side. You do everything just right. I love to see you use your hands, she said. They're so strong and skillful. I ought to know something about fires. I've made enough of them. As a young fellow, I did a lot of jobs that took me into remote places, surveying and construction gangs, and I've camped a bit, hunting and fishing. I might even say that I can make coffee and fry bacon without utterly destroying their food values. She established him before the fire in the most comfortable chair in the room and sat at his feet. With her arms folded upon his knees to make a resting place for her head, she listened with the rapt attention a child gives to a beguiling chronicler as he told how he was lost for three days in the Canadian wilds and of a flight by canoe on a stormy night to fetch a doctor for one of his party who had fallen ill. He had given her from the first a sense of far horizons, and tonight her fancy perfected every picture his narratives suggested of hills and woodlands and streams. They constituted a new background against which she saw in him an heroic figure equal to any demand that might be made upon his strength and courage. One of these days, he went on, we must do the Canadian Rockies together. And then I'd like to take you to some places I know in Maine. Just guides and canoes and us. And I want to do India before I die. But not without you. You're in all my future. I want to live a long time to enjoy life with you. Does that appall you? She was gazing wide-eyed into the fire. Her dark eyes the harbor of dreams. And he laughed and bent forward to touch her cheek and break the spell that bound her. I should love it all, dear, she said with a happy sigh. To be with you, to share everything with you, oh, that would be more happiness than I could bear. You do love me. Tell me, dear, once more that you do. More than all this earth and the stars, more than all the other universes beyond this one, she cried, laughing at her extravagance. He raised his hand and bade her listen. I thought the wind changed a while ago. The weather spirit's abroad. Let's have a look. He threw on the porch lights and opened the front door. It was snowing hard. The porch steps and driveway were already covered and the nearest trees had been transformed into ghostly sentinels. She clapped her hands in delight at the beauty of it. It makes me think of Snowbound, she said when they had gone back to the fire. I used to know some of that poem. Little Grace will now recite for you. She assumed the attitude of a schoolgirl recitationist and repeated, gesturing awkwardly. 
What matter how the night behaved? What matter how the north wind raved? Blow high, blow low, not all its snow could quench our hearth fire's ruddy glow. I'm talented, you can see that. What if we should be snowed in? What if we should, he answered. Tommy always carries a full larder and we wouldn't starve to death. With her hands clasped before her, she gazed down at the flames. He drew his arm about her waist and the room was silent, save for the cozy murmur of the fire. Why not stay here all night? Jerry hasn't left and he'll spend the night if I ask him and give us breakfast. I suppose you have to go to the store tomorrow. Yes, the assent was to one or all of his questions as he might choose to interpret it. We can go in, of course, early in the morning. I have a nine o'clock engagement myself. They'll be expecting me at home, she said, pondering deeply. But if I could telephone from here, I think Tommy's connected direct with the city exchange. Jerry can tell us. He rang for Jerry, who confirmed his impression as to the telephone connection. Trenton detained the boy to ask for more logs while Grace went to the pantry to telephone. Were you going into town tonight, Jerry? No, Mr. Trenton, too. Complete snowing. I very well stay all night. The runabout's in order, is it? Yes, Miss Durland and I are spending the night. If you could give us breakfast, Jerry? With much ease, Mr. Trenton. Trenton lit a cigarette and smoked meditatively while Jerry noiselessly filled the wood box. Grace reappeared as Jerry stood awaiting further instructions. Oh, Grace, what time shall we say for breakfast? Trenton asked casually. I must be at the store at 8.30, she answered from the door. Then breakfast at 7. We better allow a little extra time in case the snow keeps up. 7 it is, Jerry. The boy left them and could be heard moving about upstairs. A clock struck 10 and Trenton exclaimed at the hour. I'd have guessed it wasn't more than 8. The hours do jump along when the heart's light. Any difficulty about not going in? No, not at all. Everyone was out but father, and I merely said I was at the house of a girlfriend and would spend the night there. She walked to a table and began inspecting the books that were arranged upon it in careful order. It might have seemed that she wished to avoid meeting his eyes immediately. He hesitated a moment, then crossed to her quickly. It's always interesting to see what books you find in a country house, he said. But it's a mistake to judge the owner by the literature you find lying about. It's usually the discards of the guests. At the place where I caused so much disappointment by not dying. Oh, please, don't say it, even as a joke, Ward, she pleaded, dropping a book she had opened and laying her hands on his arm. Well, I won't then. I was jealous of that book. You were so absorbed, I almost felt that I was alone in the room. And I was horribly oppressed by the general vacancy, emptiness, voidness. Now my vanity is touched to find that you hadn't really gone away and left me. You're very much here. You're so foolish, she said. What were the books you found in your room at that place where you were ill? Oh, they were on the occult and had been left behind by some enthusiastic spook hunter. After that hour when I so plainly saw you right there by my bed, I studied those books carefully. I wanted to explain the transformation of a very plain nurse in spectacles into the most beautiful girl in the world. And did you explain it? Yes, but not from the books. How was it then? My heart did the explaining. I knew I loved you. That's the answer to all my questions. You do love me, Ward, really and truly? Yes, dear, 
and then with head lifted, he added as though repeating a pledge from some ritual, with all my heart, with all my soul, with every hope of happiness I have for the future, I love you. He took her in his arms and held her so that he could look down into her eyes. I want to be everything to you. I want to fill your heart so that you will turn to me in every need. I want you all or nothing. Her lips parted tremulously, inviting his kiss. She felt singularly secure and content in his arms. All or nothing, she repeated in a low whisper. Yes, there was no escape for us from the beginning, he said slowly. It's been like a drawing of the tide that no man's hand could stay. They walked slowly to the hearth, his hands thrust deep into his coat pockets. He eyed the fire critically and rearranged the half-burnt logs. Guess I'd better put this up as a precaution, he remarked, lifting the wire screen that stood against the wall and laying it against the arch under the mantel. Run along, dear. I'll see to the locking up. He went into the hall and snapped on the lights and kissed his hand to her as she started up the steep, old-fashioned stair. The lights were turned on in all the rooms, and humming softly, she wandered through them, pausing finally in one in which a suitcase lay open on a chair, evidently placed there by Jerry. She recognized it as Irene's kept at the shack for occasions when she spent the night there. Below, Trenton was testing the fastening of the doors. She lifted her head, listening intently as she heard his step. 3. As she dressed the next morning, Grace saw a white world reluctantly disclosing itself in the gray dawn. Trenton was already gone, and hearing the scraping of a shovel, she looked out and saw him clearing a path that led to an old barn which Kemp had converted into a garage. Jerry darted out of the kitchen to remonstrate, and Trenton ceased from his labors to fling a shovel full of snow at him. When she went down, Trenton met her in the hall, kissed her, and led her with mock ceremony to the dining room door. Breakfast for two. Something awfully cozy about that table with the plates so close together. Just perfect. I'd like to take a run through the snow. Wouldn't it be jolly? And there's that hill we climbed yesterday that would be a grand place for coasting. No time for that now, he replied, looking at his watch. There's a good six inches of snow, and being out so early, we'll have to be pathfinders. It will be about all we can do to hit Washington Street by 8.30. There's going to be waffles and maple syrup for breakfast. I got that out of Jerry. Also, bacon and guaranteed eggs. The Olympians had nothing on us, she replied in his own tone of gaiety. Oh, we are become even as the gods, he cried, drawing out her chair. This is a touch. Breakfast by candlelight. Tall candles and glass holders lighted the table. Grace, for a fleeting moment, thought of the kitchen at home where her mother and Ethel were now preparing breakfast, wholly ignorant of her whereabouts. Trenton saw the smile waver and leave her face, and he bent over and laid his hand on hers. You know. No, you don't. You can't know what all this means to me. I feel as though I'd been dead and come to life again. Does it mean so much, dear? She asked her eyes, intent and searching, meeting his. If you look at me like that, dear, he replied, I'll never be able to finish this grapefruit. Then with a quick change of tone, he asked anxiously, 
You're not unhappy, dear? No, it's just the strangeness of being here, that's all. It doesn't seem real to me either. I'd thought so much of just such an hour as this, facing a new day and a new world with you, that it's hard to believe the dream has really come true. But you'll be going away. There will be lots of times I can't see you. It's going to be hard to get used to that, she said pensively. Don't worry on that score. I've got a lot of work laid out for the next year right here in the Middle West. I can easily spend my Sundays in Indianapolis. I'd travel a mighty long way just for a sight of you. Let's make the most of today and not worry about tomorrow. Sufficient unto the day is the happiness thereof. She smiled her acquiescence in this philosophy, was again buoyant and joined with him in praising Jerry as the boy appeared with a plate of fresh waffles. I tell you what I'll do, exclaimed Trenton suddenly. I'll cut all my engagements for today if you will, and we'll stay right here. Oh, it would be wonderful. But I mustn't even think of it. I'd lose my job. And besides, I mustn't forget I have a family. Please don't try to persuade me. But you know I'd love to stay, not just today, but forever. I wish you didn't have your job, he said, frowning. I don't feel comfortable about that. Don't begin telling me I ought to be doing something different. Everybody else does. I really enjoy my work at Shipley's. There ought to be some way, he began. Something in her look caused him to pause. I was going to say that I don't like the idea of your working. You must let me... Now... Ward, forgive me, dear, he said contritely. I believe in work, she went on quickly. I mean always to do something. Maybe not just what I'm doing now, but something. When you talk that way, I feel as though you didn't expect to belong to me always. He rose and drew her to her feet. Let's have that understood here and now. He held her away, his hands resting lightly on her cheeks, as he looked into her eyes with mock severity. We've got to be on our way in about two minutes, Miss Sterland, and there must be no nonsense about this. Is it for always? Yes, for always, she answered. To the very end? Yes, to the very end, she assented soberly, and there was the foreshadowing of tears in her eyes. No matter what may happen, no matter if there should be times of separation beyond our control, you will still love me and trust me? Yes, always. There will never be anyone else for me but you, not if I live a thousand years. She put her arms about his neck and kissed him, a kiss without passion, on forehead and lips. You don't care less for me, now, she asked and pressed her face close to his. Grace, he cried, catching her wrists and looking into her eyes. You wouldn't think that of me. I'd be a beast. She laid her hand over his lips. Forgive me, dear, she whispered. If I didn't trust you, I couldn't love you, and I just, I thought, dearest little girl. Four. The sun came out of the mists as they set off for town, with the snow flung up by the rear wheels of the car whirling behind in a miniature storm. You're not afraid of a little speed. Not with you, she answered happily. Was that the right answer? One hundred percent correct. Look at the smoke from that farmer's chimney. It goes up as straight as a column, not a breath of air. It's a dear, good old world, she said, her eyes reflecting her enjoyment of the swift rush between the long stretches of white level fields, broken by patches of woodland. 
What's the dearest thing in all the world, he demanded. You, she replied. Wrong that time. It's you. I wonder how many lovers have said just that to each other. Thousands, billions, no doubt, but that doesn't matter. It never was as true of the others as it is of us. We're not conceited or anything. No, just happy, honestly and truly. Are you happy? Enormously, are you? Right up to the perishing point. Then why are you happy? Because the dearest girl in the world loves me. They laughed their delight in this interchange, stopping to extricate from its difficulties a car which, unprovided with skid chains, had landed in a ditch and hurried on to make up for lost time. It was with a sense of disillusionment that Grace saw the city, as it seemed, coming out to meet her. Trenton was talking of his day's appointments, of the men he expected to see. Grace's thoughts flew ahead to the store, where she would meet Irene, meet her friend with a new self-consciousness, and of the deceptions and evasions that would be necessary to explain her night's absence at home. But these thoughts were fleeting. She was happy in the confidence that the man beside her truly loved her and her love for him, which she had so often challenged and questioned, even after she first encouraged him to think she cared, was no longer a matter for debate. She assured herself that there was nothing base in the relationship into which she had entered with him, that the attraction had been of the mind and spirit, first of all. She swiftly reviewed all the points upon which her justification rested and was satisfied that they stood the test of the morning sunlight and the clean, wholesome air. She had no regrets, no misgivings. She had already convinced herself that their love was sufficient in itself. He turned from time to time to smile at her and took her hand that it might rest beneath his on the wheel. We haven't settled yet when I'm to see you again. I want every minute you can give. Can't we have dinner together tonight? I wish we could, but I've got to go home for supper. But I can see you afterwards, please. I could go to Miss Lawton's where we met the first time. I think I can fix it with Minnie. Then that's settled. I understand perfectly that you have your family to consider, and we've got to remember there are people in the world who haven't much to do but pry into other people's business. They're a large and mischievous phalanx. For the present, we've got to be careful. She was rather relieved that he did not amplify the suggestive for the present. He was thinking she assumed of his wife and the freedom which he had intimated would be his for the asking. But marriage was no assurance of the perpetuation of love. It was a convention, no doubt desirable and necessary for society's protection. But Grace was in a mood to enjoy her sense of being in rebellion against society, that intangible they which she had brought herself to believe quite ignorantly established laws and in the light of them appraised and condemned human frailty. She derived the greatest comfort from this idea. It encouraged and strengthened her belief that she was an independent unit of the social order. If her relationship with Trenton became known, she would forfeit the love and confidence of her family and many prized friendships. But his love would be compensation for anything she might lose in the eyes of people she felt to be hopelessly shackled to old notions of rectitude and chastity, with which she no longer felt any concern. It would be necessary, of course, to maintain secrecy, but it was no one's business what she did with her life. 
Last chance for a kiss, Trenton exclaimed, slipping his arm about her as they reached the Meridian Street Bridge. She asked him to let her out of the soldier's monument to avoid the possibility of being inspected by questioning eyes at Shipley's. Trenton was going at once to Kemp's house to make sure Tommy was all right. He meant to have it out with Tommy about his drinking. Tell your father I'd like to see him tomorrow at two o'clock. Yes, I have the address. With his goodbye ringing in her ears, she walked the few remaining blocks to the store. End of section 12.